The Guardian. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, the great and the not-so-good of Fleet Street lay it out for Leveson as the inquiry reopens. We bring you full analysis after an extraordinary week in the Royal Courts of Justice, featuring, among others, a certain Richard Desmond. I think it's Britain's worst enemy, the Daily Mail. They're telling everything is so negative and so disgusting. Also in the podcast... We now want to reflect what I believe is the greatest and most ambitious mainstream slate of drama in the country, possibly in the world. The BBC's Head of Drama Commissioning tells us why we should all have great expectations about the year ahead. And we need to be sitting on Xboxes, UView, PCs. That's, that's the game now. Forget about DAB. Well, not entirely. Tim Davey outlines the challenges for radio as it plays catch-up in the digital age. I'm John Plunkett, and this is Media Talk from The Guardian. Now, you'll have seen that TV chef Anthony Worrell Thompson was all over the front pages this week for stealing some E-down from his local Tesco. And, like the papers, our show is similarly dominated by big cheeses. The Leveson Inquiry got back into full swing this week, with just about every Fleet Street drawn from Marge taking their turn on the witness stand. Dan Saber, the Guardian's head of media and technology, was in the Royal Courts of Justice following every word. Dan, it was billed as Editor's Week, but it turned out it was a proprietor, Richard Desmond, who stole the show. What did you make of his performance? Yeah, I think it was quite a dispiriting and depressing performance from Richard Desmond, to be honest, John. He affected not to really understand what ethics and morals were, eventually sort of settling on the notion that everyone's ethics and morality are different, so we don't talk about it very much. I mean, what a thing to say when you're a newspaper owner, really. He uh, made a couple of nice jokes early on and talked about the Daily Malicious, which is as a kind of as a one-off single aside was quite entertaining, but... Later on, he started to sound like a bit of a kind of raving conspiracy theorist, really, and started to say, well, reporting about the McCanns was justified, all this sort of libelous reporting, which in effect had implied that the McCanns were responsible for the death of their daughter, uh, or indeed killed the daughter. Uh, 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 that He implied that that was all fair enough because some people in Britain maybe held that view, much as some people in Britain thought that the royal family had killed Princess Diana, you know, pretty much his exact words on that. You just thought to yourself, this is this is the, our newspaper industry here, and uh, this is a powerful and important player within it, and we're just seeing someone who really wants to make sort of slightly artless and off-key jokes and make all these rather sort of remarks, which just frankly uh, depressing. I mean, what does this do for people's perception of tabloids? Do you think? I mean, you, you could be forgiven for thinking it couldn't sink any lower after the evidence of, of Paul McMullen, for instance. But uh, does it does it sort of get out there into the wider world? Do you think? I, look, I think it does up to it does to a point. I think you know, for some people, people who th- are, think the tabloids are bad things and think the owners are sort of propri- you know these m- cigar smoking, you know, press barons, if you like, sort of terrible people or, or, or caricatures, will find everything they want in, in in Richard Desmond. Dare I say? And this is just, in its way, terribly depressing. However, not all tabloids are the same, not all owners are the same. So I think people who, you know, know their papers or or, or know the business or just have a strong attachment to the Daily Mail or the Sun or the Mirror, you know, they know it's slightly, you know, they know it's slightly different out there. Tell us a bit about the man himself. He he tends not to do interviews, and perhaps we now know why, but this sort of performance wasn't entirely unexpected. No, this is what, listen, this is what Richard Desmond's like. You know, Richard is not a kind of intellectual, right? He's an instinctive, emotional 
emotional operator. Uh, he gets a strong feeling about something and he gets on with it and does it. You know, you don't get to be a billionaire by being being a fool. You don't get to be a billionaire by being, uh, you know, anything other than a sharp, you know, sharp operator, in this case, very sharp business operator. But if you're going to sit there and say to him, I'm going to give you five rational reasons, Richard, why you should come back into the PCC, you, 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 what you'll get is an emotional response, which roughly, but you know, again, it's, it's not always sort of totally articulate, but you get it, which is that I don't like it. It's a club and it's run by people like Paul Dacre and I don't like Paul Dacre and these people criticise me all the time and, I've, and I'm sick of it. And, and there's a lot to sympathise in that point of view, actually. And so, you know, that did also come across in the inquiry. The problem was it came across, in a, you know, mixed up with with so many jokes. And this is a public inquiry. And I think when Lord Leveson says, or, or Robert, you know, when he's asked what should replace the PCC, you know, Richard Desmond quips using his initials an RCD committee. I mean, there's no answer to the question. You know, he's not giving an interview and this is not a bit of fun. You know, this is statutory inquiry into press standards. Well, earlier in the week, if you can remember that far back, the spotlight turned onto Lord Justice Leveson himself and the nature of the inquiry and the suggestion that the right questions weren't being asked. Dominic Moen, for instance, wasn't asked about the paper's coverage of Chris Jeffries, the man it libelled following the murder of Jonah Yeats, and uh, Tony Gallagher of the Daily Telegraph wasn't asked about its Vince Cable sting for which it was hauled over the coals by the PCC. Dan, what did you make of that? Do you think, um, do you think the inquiry wasn't tough enough early in, earlier in the week? I think Monday and Tuesday, I don't know, it was like the on switch hadn't been turned on at the Leveson Inquiry. Uh, I mean, Dominic Moe and the sound editor build as the sort of big moment, you know, off the Monday. And it was a very sort of tame sessional round. I mean, it was asked some very sort of straightforward questions and gave some straightforward answers and I mean you hit the nail on the head Chris Jeffries is a classic example of something that he ought to be asked it happened uh, you know while Dominic was editor at the turn of 2010-2011 now Robert Jay did ask um, other editors about it like, subsequently and said that he didn't ask Dominic Moen because he was on holiday at the time he should have asked Dominic Moen that question and Dominic Moen could have given that answer and then it was like well what procedures are in place and what are you doing to change things so and again on Tuesday the tried to pack in too much they gave Lionel Barber the editor of the FT an hour and a half that's fine uh, but they sort of dashed off Tony Gallagher the editor of the Telegraph in 45 minutes uh, and this consistency of questioning was very frustrating they didn't ask Tony Gallagher at all about the sort of so-called Cablegate affair where this leaked tape recording of Vince Cable declaring war on Murdoch you know taken covertly from these two young reporters posing as Vince Cable's constituents. That, that leaked out of the Telegraph's newsroom and got in the hands of Robert Peston, the BBC. Why, Peston said, because a whistleblower thought that, uh, that the Telegraph weren't going to publish this piece of information because it might not have helped their case against the B-Sky B-Bid. Uh, this is a serious allegation. It should have been put to Tony Gallagher. He should have had a chance to answer it. As it was, it was, it was allowed to hang. On the Wednesday, with the questioning of Peter Wright at the Mail on Sunday and the questioning of the Desmond editors and uh, Richard himself. Do you think they read the coverage and uh, was that too simplistic? I think they, they took did. on board the criticism. Yeah. No, I think they did read the coverage, and I well, I know they read the coverage because at one point um, Robert Jay was trying to, to try to take take to one side a gentleman called Jim Cusick, a reporter at the Independent, thinking he was uh, the Guardian's own Roy Greenslade. <laughs> that that misunderstanding was pointed out. Right, I think as I understand it, Robert Jay was unable to take um, Mr Cusick to task. And one uh, fascinating figure the inquiry revealed was that the Daily Mail picture desk gets sent up to four hundred pictures in a single day of Pippa Middleton, which uh, uh, it seems an extraordinary figure. It was an extraordinary figure and, and well worth them putting, putting that out there, actually. It clearly, well, it, I mean, it, firstly, it does go to show that even if newspapers aren't buying very much or at all, and the Mail says they've sparingly used pictures of Pippa Middleton, I'm sure that's right. You know, even these things aren't used at all. There are people just out there 
sort of harassing bluntly the sort of celebrity of the moment, whether that's, I don't know, Sienna Miller or Pippa Middleton. I mean, you know, Pippa Middleton's not famous for anything apart from, apart from the just he's related to the royal family, I guess. But it must be worth these guys' while. And, and, and so somewhere we've got to hear more about that. Now, I think, interestingly, at least the picture agencies are coming to Leveson uh, quite soon. I think that's going to be a really interesting day. And, and, and although Leveson has sort of gone wide at times, I think the, the sort of the, the use of paparazzi photographs and this sort of harassment issue is something that it really is need, need, does need to take on. And Dan, as ever, we conclude by asking what's next for Leveson. What's next for Leveson? Well, it's the it'll be the Mirror titles, Mirror Group titles on on Monday. So no doubt we don't know for sure at this point, but no doubt Richard Wallace said it's the Daily Mirror, and obviously we've got Sunday Mirror and the People, um, I, uh, you know, and some executives. And on Tuesday, to complete uh, the lineup of national newspapers, we have the Times and the Dear Old Guardian. So uh, uh, that'll sort of complete, I think, this this little phase. Although, by the way, there's regional press, and I've mentioned picture agencies, and we've also got some of the broadcasters, some of the big cheeses from the broadcasters coming quite soon. So, <laughs> you know, Leveson rolls on. There's going to be people to talk to, editors to see, uh, aggrieved celebrities to talk about. So yeah, this one's going to run and run. Dan, thanks very much. And there's all things Leveson, of course, at mediaguardian.co.uk. To television now. And although we're only a fortnight into 2012, an Olympic year, the bar's already been set incredibly high for BBC drama. Sherlock is pulling in audiences of 10 million plus, and you can watch the final episode of the series this Sunday night. But what else is in store on BBC One and BBC Two? Media Guardian's very own Tara Conlon caught up with Ben Stevenson, the BBC's controller of drama commissioning, to find out more. I think last year um, we focused on BBC Two and wanted the added investment to really pay off and we're really thrilled that uh, we feel now BBC Two has completely re-established itself as the home of a certain type of author drama. We now want to turn the spotlight onto BBC One um, and to reflect what I believe is the greatest... Um, and most ambitious mainstream slate of drama in the country, possibly in the world. So we're looking at um, how we re-energise BBC One's drama. This year we'll see 24 new titles, uh, that's including single serials and uh, series on BBC One, as well as the return of um, 15 returning series and 20 hours of new dramas as well. One of those dramas, War of the Roses, you describe as your most ambitious project yet. Can you tell us why that is, please? It does feel very ambitious, and we're at the very beginning of it. It is um, an extraordinary adaptation by Emma Frost of Philippa Gregory's novels, uh, well, non-fiction books, um, The White Queen and The Red Queen, and it tells the story of the Wars of the Roses um, from beginning to end through the women who stand behind the throne. So thematically, in terms of its history, in terms of its production, in terms of its number of episodes, which we can't quite um, clarify yet, but we will soon, it feels incredibly ambitious to me. Um, But also at heart, what it really is, is just a fantastic page-turning story that I think a BBC One audience are really going to love. Sherlock has been a big hit for you. Um, What was your reaction to the coverage about the nude scenes in the first episode? Uh, Well, obviously, we thought long and hard um, about the show as a pre-Watershed show and had many discussions about it. Um, I think, ultimately, we made absolutely the right decision uh, in that it is a cheeky, bold, mainstream show. Um, And uh, we got 100 complaints, and we take those seriously, but we also did get 10.6 million viewers. Um, So I guess my feeling is 
that we should always take risks with what we do, but that we should always be very careful and very thoughtful in taking those risks. And I think the majority of the audience, it really paid off for them. Great Expectations was um, another success for you. What other adaptations are you going to do following that? Um, You always have to choose them carefully. You don't want to just fall back on doing adaptations. You need to feel that they've got something new to offer. I think they'll remain a relatively small part of what we do. Um, But we do have some really exciting ones coming up. We've got a big adaptation of Birdsong in the next couple of weeks, which I think is phenomenally good. And then next Christmas, we're going to do The Moonstone. Uh, I'm really attracted to doing this. It's going to be adapted by Ed Whitmore, who's written a lot of Waking the Dead, because it is the first... Um, detective story and TV is so much about detectives it feels a fantastic way of remembering the heritage of so much television today it's just a cracking story for Christmas and what's going to be the effect of the cuts that are being made as part of delivering quality first what's going to be the effect of those on drama the proposal suggests that drama is a really key part of the BBC, um, that uh, BBC One and BBC Two are going to be where we focus. We will um, lose some investment from BBC Three um, and we will not make any more drama on BBC Four. So the focus becomes BBC One and BBC Two. We already had massive investment last year on BBC Two and we hope over time to have more investment on BBC One. So it's a really good news story for um, all supporters of BBC Drama. Finally this week, a bit of radio. The good people of Absolute Radio were at the Houses of Parliament this week. Nope, they weren't launching Absolute MPs. That would be too niche a digital service even for them. But they were talking about internet and the radio, and Facebook, and Xbox, and much else besides, it turns out. But has radio been slow to embrace the internet? Here's Tim Davey, the BBC's Director of Audio and Music, and first, Clive Dickens, the Chief Operating Officer of Absolute. The internet has been fast to change our lives in terms of the amount of time we spend on it and the enjoyment we get from it. And, and clearly the internet is an incredibly complimentary thing to do whilst listening to the radio. So there hasn't been this massive push to actually say, well, how can the internet help transform radio? So really what um, we want to try and achieve in the future is actually say, OK, the internet hasn't disrupted our consumption. People still love listening to radio, but how can it transform our business model? So you know, to your question, absolutely, we can do a lot more to understand how the internet can actually transform and redefine our business model. Tim Davey was saying that the, uh, the radio industry has, has got over a sort of a crisis in terms of what its digital future is going to look like, but there's still a, a lot of uncertainty when it comes to DAB radio, for instance. I think, well, the, really at the moment, the uncertainty separates between national radio and local radio. In, you know, we operate in national radio, and there's a significant amount of certainty, whether it's national, B, national BBC Max, Digital One, you know, and the success of the brands on there, whether it's Absolute and Smooth and Planet Rock and Six Music, etc. Now, as an industry, we've also got to work and actually sort out you know, the local side of things. But really, where we're continually talking about is where, where the IP and broadcast, where the IP and DAB come together, Together. And effectively, and I've heard you talk about this on the Media Week, um, a Media Talk podcast before, about hybrid. And hybrid is really one of the ways of which time can sort of catch up with the debate. And I genuinely believe if, if we start referring to how um, IP can enhance DAB, we can actually find a better solution of how DAB can roll out even faster in the local, in local sense. Tim, how should radio grasp the internet? What's it not doing that it should be doing? Well, I mean, I think in its defence, I think it's had a very good year in terms of radio player. If you look at the quality of the radio stations on the, on the internet at the moment, you're seeing huge innovation. Look at Radio 1, look at Absolute, look at Global. 
So it's been a good year. Um, having said that, I think that the, the breakthrough is twofold now. One is creative. So I think we're largely putting old content onto, onto the internet. So I think there'll be ideas now. Um, I mentioned um, Melvin Bragg in the speech I was talking today. Um, and that, you, know, you can link through and look at some of the materials at the Cambridge Digital Library on the Written Word series. That kind of creative thinking needs to come through more. The other point is we need to be sitting on Xboxes, UView, PCs. That's, that's the game now. And what is uh, radio doing with the internet that maybe it shouldn't be doing? You, you, you said in your address to the conference that maybe you weren't such a huge fan of webcams, for instance. Well, I, it's not, I think radio um, needs to be careful that you just don't visualise everything and chuck up video everywhere. I think it, our power has always been about curating, editing. So my point um, here was simply to say that, you know, it's, it's more powerful when we visualise things on a screen that are properly edited, properly curated, rather than just showing stuff on a webcam. You warned a couple of years ago uh, in another industry speech that uh, the average amount of time people spend listening to the radio during the week was, was on the decline on a per-listener basis. Uh, is that still a concern? Has that been reversed? No, I think largely. I mean, it's been an amazing two years for radio, and, and it, it sounds like I'm gushing, but the facts are pretty good. Hours have held up. The issue is younger, younger hours, not reach, so the number of people listening um, uh, is there. And, and the challenge there is, again, um, I think the obvious one is we need to be on more smartphone devices. If I have one challenge for the industry, it would be to get onto devices. We need to be distributed um, on iPhones, on the various platforms, I think we have a really good case, but we need to make that this year. That's a real priority, actually. And you said the future for radio is a, is a, is a screen-based one. Well, I was saying, I mean, I'm a big fan of um, pure audio. Um, I've always felt that audio will hold up for a long time. But the truth is, in terms of devices, when you go to the device... So you, you, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying listening won't happen, but when you go to a device, it will have a screen on it. So I think how we appear on that screen, what information we give on that screen... I mean, we've been at it for a while, but that is now real-time. I mean, uh, a real-time issue. Um, we need to get hold of it and make sure we're in fighting form on that one. Well, boys and girls, that's it for this week. If you want to have your say on anything you've heard, head on over to the blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalk or hang out with the cool kids over on Facebook. Media Talk's produced by Ben Green and I'm John Plunkett. Ta-ta for now. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.